Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Tammy Gregerson, professor of English at American University of Sharjah. Dr. Gregerson, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Ah, it's my pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. The chapter we're going to be discussing today is entitled Dealing with the Emotions of Teaching Abroad, Searching for Silver Linings in a Difficult Context. And this was published in the book, The Emotional Roller Coaster of Language Teaching, edited by Christina Gonneau, Jean-Marc Dabade, and Jim King. Quite a group of talented people. And I'm actually holding the book in my hand. And a great book. I really recommend people checking this book out and other books in the series, The Psychology of Language Learning and Teaching, edited by your colleagues, uh, Sarah Mercer and Stephen Ryan. So Stephen Ryan, The exactly. who's who. Right. All right. So before we get into the chapter, uh, I'd like to hand over the floor to you, so to speak, and to hear your background and maybe as far back as you'd like to go and you know why you ended up getting interested in, in language teaching and language learning, and then eventually becoming a professor. So uh, I'll kind of hand over the floor to you. Yeah, great. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. You know, it, it's kind of funny because I, oh, even now, um, even though I'm a, a, you know, a professor and I'm training teachers, I perceive myself first as a teacher and then as an applied linguist because mm. um, teaching is where my passion is. And I, when I was growing up, I never thought I would be a teacher. It wasn't until I graduated from college and I had a degree that made me sit in an office that I said, no, 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 this isn't for me. And so I, I decided that I wanted to be a teacher because I knew that every country in the world that had diplomatic relations with the United States had an international school. And I just wanted to travel and see the world. And so I thought that this was my ticket to, to, to travel and to experience other cultures. And interestingly enough, particularly because we're going to be talking about this one uh, manuscript, is that my first teaching job was actually at an international school in Chile. And hmm. uh, yeah, and then um, of course I was going to just take a two-year a two-year stint and then move on to my next one and you know see the world before I died. But what happened was I fell in love and got married in Chile. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, and so there went yeah, the, seventeen years in Chile. <laughs> I, I I was there. I got my master's degree in education and my PhD in in um, in linguistics. But what was so critical about that time was that because I was in Chile and I was living in a culture where social image was such an important feature of of the way of life, um, language anxiety was really a huge problem in my language classroom because I, I couldn't get students to interact because they were always afraid of looking stupid. And so that's what actually started me on this whole idea of looking at affective variables in language learning because it was really something that came up in my own classroom. And so then with, with that, I, you know, I started looking at anxiety. I wanted to see, you know, why it happened, um, what we could do about it. And then I, I came to the conclusion that, you know what, none of those other questions matter unless I know who my anxious learners are. Mm. And that's when I got into the study of nonverbal nonverbal behavior in the language classroom. Because if you take a look at the verbal channel and the nonverbal channel, and I did write a book on this, um, what happens is it's the nonverbal channel that we express emotion. 
Mm. And it's the verbal channel where we, you know, talk about information. So that nonverbal then became, I, I became very interested in the whole idea of emotion and emotion in language learning. But then because I'm training teachers, the whole idea of focusing on teachers, because they're actually my learners, right? Mm. So that's how I got into emotions and, and teacher ed, uh, language teacher emotion and well-being and positive psychology, because the positive psychology part it, it came to me because it really resonates with who I am and what I believe. Um, I, I, it, I really do believe that when we take a positive perspective and look at it from, you know, a, a person from their strengths rather than what's wrong with them, I think that we can get a lot more done. So yeah, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. What was your degree, your undergraduate degree that brought you uh, to the office? Uh, yeah, it, it was uh, communications. And that was also, you know, somewhere where I got that start with the verbal, nonverbal. And I thought I would go into like public relations or marketing or something like that. And then I realized I had to sit in a cubicle for too long and that just wasn't, wasn't going to happen. So, and then actually my, my, um, my language arts degree, uh, it was actually post-baccalaureate. So essentially I have two undergraduate majors, one in communications and one in language arts education. Now, did you finish your master's and PhD while you were living in Chile? Yeah. Yep, I did. Um, the education degree I did um, while I was actually full-time employed. Um, and I had my first child at the, at the, at the, in the middle of it. Um, the PhD, I had a sabbatical and I was able to do it in um, at least the coursework. I got it done in a year and then went back to teach and did my uh, dissertation while working. So yeah, I was a busy lady. That's interesting. You talked about the nonverbal communication and, you know, the, I don't know, the sense of self in Chile, because that sounds very similar to Japan, except for one point in, in Japan, you know, cultural display rules, you know, are very neutral. There, there was a study that Matsumoto did in 91 and 2002. And so I'm, I'm, I find the same thing where people are very concerned about their status and their social status, especially, you know, and, and a, a lot of people say, you know, a classroom is still inside Japan. So that's, that's one of, I've read a lot of your papers. So I'm kind of interested in the same kind of thing. When you said that, it kind of struck me by surprise. I didn't think that, you know, people worried about their social status was, was so common in, in South America. Were you aware of that before you went? Um, I don't know that I gave it much thought actually. Mm. Um, you know, being an American, you know, when you take a look at the, the, the literature, I mean, we are, you probably know this too, Jonathan, um, Americans are very individualistic. We don't belong to a collectivistic society. Mm. And both Japan and Chile are very collectivistic. So they're very, there's a lot of solidarity there and there's a lot of camaraderie there and they care about what other people think. Mm. And so walking in as an American, um, you know, with, with this whole idea of, you know, I am me and I don't care what other people think <laughs> to a degree, of course. Right. I mean, this is all relative and it's all very generalized conversation. Right. So, um, uh, it, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't surprising to me because there were, you know, I was, this was the first cross-cultural experience I had. And so everything was new to me. Hmm. So when I was teasing it apart, um, I discovered that, wow, yeah, there's a lot of social image management going on here. And 
and you know the the whole part about what emotions you can display and cannot display that's a whole study in itself and what and, and you know the masking rules i think that japan i mean because i've had japanese students japan has you know, somewhat strict masking rules, whereas Chile doesn't have that. I mean, Ch- Chileans are very emotional, and they'll, they'll they'll definitely demonstrate their emotion. So there's all kinds of fun, you know, things that occur cross-culturally as well as in intra- and inter-culturally. So, yeah. Yeah, if people are interested, you should check out the research by Matsumoto about the display right. rules. It's very, very right. interesting. People interpreting uh, emotions of others. Uh, in different cultures, which is kind of fascinating. Well, um, I spoke to a few of your colleagues. Uh, one recently, the episode hasn't been posted yet, but when this episode's posted, it should be on the website. Uh, Kyle Talbot, Aha, who Kyle. Ta- yeah. talked about you in Northern Iowa. So, what can you? Where did you? Can you fill in some of the uh, dots there? How did you get from Chile yeah, to Iowa? I, Kyle, Kyle, oh, I love Kyle and he knows it. Kyle was a master student of mine and I don't know how much he shared because I haven't heard your podcast, but he is just the coolest. He's an artist because he's a musician. And in fact, um, I have, uh, the, the nonverbal book, there's actually online on YouTube, a whole like 78 different videos that accompany that book hmm. that will help teachers as they try to to do the activities that are in the book and all of the music that is um, coming into those videos is his music that he created. He wrote the music and he played that music with his band. Wow. Yeah. So he used to go around in a band um, and, and, and play in nightclubs and um, yeah, he's just so cool. And then of course we researched uh, quite a bit together during his masters. And we, in fact, we traveled to Dubai together to present at TESOL Arabia and that was a lot of fun. And ever since then, and then when he said he wanted a PhD and he was very interested in what I was doing, then I turned him on to Sarah Mercer and Sarah took him under her wing and he got his PhD with her. And funny thing, it was just like a month ago, Sarah and I were like the, the, the proud mother hens of our <laughs> little chick because he got his, uh, he defended his dissertation brilliantly and he, he is now a full fledged member of the PhD community. Woohoo! Congratulations, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, he seemed like a really nice guy. And he said, oh. yeah, he said he was managing a nightclub while working on all of this stuff, which seems impossible to me. <laughs> well, he's got that that amazing personality. He's super charismatic. Well, how did you end up in Iowa? Well, that was fun. Um, okay, so my husband was the, the rector, uh, the president of a university in Chile, and mm. the politics got just outrageous. And so we decided that we wanted to move back to the U.S., just to, just for change. And um, we decided that whoever got the first job first, the other would be the trailing spouse because okay. we're both academics. He's a, he's a, a PhD in engineering. And so we started, you know, putting out our CVs and it was easier for me as an applied linguist to get a job than for him who had been in administration for so long. Hmm. And so I wanted to go back to the Midwest because I'm a Midwestern gal. And so University of Northern Iowa offered us or offered me a job. And so we ended up in University of Northern Iowa right from Chile. So we, I was very happy there. I was 17 years at the University of Northern Iowa. Go Panthers! 17 years in Chile and 17 years in Iowa? Yeah. That's the there's number? Right. There's something about 17, huh? There's something. Yeah. Yeah, I like the 17-year itch. 
And then, <laughs> and then now you're in, uh, in, in Sharjah, which the, is the, near Dubai, right? Right. The Emirate right next to Dubai. So the United Arab Emirates is seven, seven separate Emirates, like seven states. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, Abu Dhabi is the capital. And then going, going in the direction is Abu Dhabi, then Dubai, then Sharjah. And then there's Ajman and then all the way to the end. And so Sharjah is right next to Dubai. I'm about 10 minutes from, from Dubai. You don't know when you're leaving Dubai and going into Sharjah. And what, what brought you there? Adventure. Um, uh, let's see. Four years ago, um, my husband and I became empty nesters for the first time. And remember, Jonathan, that my whole idea was to see the world before I died and taking mm-hmm. on these education gigs, right? Mm-hmm. So I no longer had to have a nest for my mm-hmm. three kids. And so they were all, you know, back, or they were all going to the university. So my husband retired and we looked at each other and said, we're free to do whatever we want. And so Sharjah made me a great offer, and we decided to come here. So we're having a great time. Seeing now, was yeah. that bef- – so you came before the alcohol laws changed? Um, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, because yeah, that- this is kind of a funny, I don't know, weird transition. But, I, yeah, I came across this picture of you and Peter McIntyre. <laughs> and, it, wow, if you're talking about a picture it says a thousand words. So was that your house in Iowa? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's my house in Iowa. You know, Peter and I are very good friends. Um, that looks like actually, a fun time. Yeah, you know, he and his wife, his wife is Anne, and they, as a couple, are very good friends with my husband and I. And we've traveled together, and we've had so much fun together. I stay at his house, he stays at my house. And what happened in that picture is that um, the Multilingual Matters um, sent, they're a great team there, huh? Fantastic yeah, so people. nice. Yeah. Wonderful people, yeah. So they... They sent us the contract to my house. And so Peter came and we, we signed the contract and we, uh, but anyway, we were in the United States. We weren't in Sharjah. So yeah, so we were having, um, we were having a, a celebratory evening there with the bottles and we actually kind of set that picture up for the, for our friends at Multilingual Matters and we dared them to put it on their website. <laughs> and they did. Did they? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how I found it. It was on a blog post. The, the, oh, I thought you found it on, on when you Google Images. <laughs> yeah, but when you click on the image, it brings you to the blog post. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I, uh, the backstory of that book. Yeah. Well, Tommy Grover and Laura, they're just they're just fun, fun people, and we have such a good time with them because we did, you know, we did um, the the first book with them, and then Peter and I did the the nonverbal book with them, and then Sarah, Peter, and I did the positive psych book with them, and so we we've got a history with them that goes way back, and they are just such fun the easy to work with. So, you know what, if you've got any early researchers or even, you know, career researchers who are looking for a publishing home and their work fits in multilingual matters, I highly recommend working with them because they're just such wonderful people to work with. Well, yeah, I mean, a little bit of the backstory, how I I know them. Um, So I, I think the very first interview, yeah, the very first interview I did was with Seiko Harumi. I don't know if you know her. Yeah. Um, and she was, she was the editor of um, East Asian Perspectives on Silence. And that was oh. a book by Multilingual Matters. And Flo from Multilingual Matters reached out and said, if I can help facilitate some of these interviews. And I thought, that's great. 
but that was before I realized that this was, you know, that book was part of a series. Right. Um, and as the, as I kept reading and doing my own research and I thought, oh my gosh, everyone who I'm reading is in these, is in this book series. Right. That's the SLA series, right? With David Singleton. Uh, I, no, I'm talking about the series um, that that Stephen Ryan and, and Sarah edit. Oh, the psychology. That, okay, that's relatively new. Okay, so uh, let me let me explain. The okay, so Stephen and Sarah started the series on the psychology of language learning and teaching about four or five years ago. Before that, we were all publishing with David Singleton in an SLA series. Oh, okay. Okay, so David and Simon are still um, Five Finger are still doing the SLA series, and there and there there's this flourishing still as well. But then um, the Stephen Ryan and, and Sarah Mercer kind of broke off there, and they have a like a, a, a subspecialty niche that's more in line with um, the psychology of language learning and teaching. Yeah, got it. Okay, well I I came on board so to speak um, with the psychology of language learning and teaching uh, series. Okay, perfect. Yep. So I've just maybe just a quick plug. Um, this this might take about 30 seconds. All right. So pre- previous interviewers, the previous interviews, Christine Gano, uh, Citation 47, Jean-Marc Devalle, Citation 44, Jim King, Citation 27, Joseph Fallett, 42, Peter DaCosta, 32, Rebecca Oxford, 36, Simon Humphreys has come on twice. Uh, Peter McIntyre, 51, Sarah, 97, uh, Kate Mayer, 39 and 95. So uh, big fan of the authors and the researchers in this series and uh, multilingual matters. So I think people should check it out. It's pretty amazing. Like you said, this uh, if this series has only been going on four years, it seems like they're upwards of 20 books at this point. Right. right. No, they're they're very prolific. They're very good. Um, Sarah and Stephen are very dedicated um, scholars. And they're so good to work with. The I think the first time I came across your name was you know in, I did I finished a master's in psychology and I was my uh, my thesis was you know studying anxiety in the classroom and I was trying to correlate heart heart rate response yeah. with uh, state self reports and I was using uh, Fitbits in the classroom. Yeah. And so the only article I could really find in the field was yours and Peter McIntyre yeah. um, when you. Yeah with the idiomatic, uh, motion of emotion. And so, and then I started reading more and more of your papers and all this time, I thought you were a PhD student of Peter McIntyre because there's so many publications you've done together. Yeah. That's because we're friends. Yeah. No, that's because we're friends. And I'll tell you something that was actually of everything I've ever done. That was my favorite piece with that we've ever written. I, I, enjoyed that um it may also be that that you know it's mesa the mesa is at the end that's my husband he did the stats oh really okay (laughs) yeah yeah so that was a lot of fun and um no i mean peter it's just you know what here here's the thing um two heads are always better than one and so it's always um, it's the same with with sarah um peter and sarah and i write a lot together and what happens is that we just are such good friends and we think so much alike that when we get together and the three of us are, and if we bring on other people too, it's just so much fun. And we, we're so much better together than we are alone because we're bouncing ideas off of each other and we're laughing and we're having fun. 
And then we read and we, you know, we, we redraft and we make comments and what would have been a one, a one person show turns into a three or four person show and five times better because we've got all of that other input with different perspectives and, Oh, I read this guy. You know what? Oh, this is really cool. Let's, 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 let's expand here. Oh, you know what? I don't know that that belongs there. Let's take that out. And so having, you know, it's one thing to have an editor, but it's another thing to have a co-author because when you've got a co-author, they are as much invested in the, in the quality of that piece as, as you are. Right. And so, I really enjoy having co-authors for that reason, that investment of another person. Editing is fine. I'll edit somebody, but there's never this kind of investment that that's in co-authoring. I think on that topic, I I wanted to broach a subject with you, which I I didn't talk about in the pre-show meeting, but I think I I sent you an email before. So sorry to spring this on you. No Um, worries. This this was a topic that came up in an interview with Ali Al-Hori, which is another person which you yes. know very well. Very um, well. And we were talking about applied linguists doing research in psychology. Yeah. And the, the conversation kind of it kind of showed up organically. But after he brought it up, um, I also asked Kim Knowles about this. And I think Peter McIntyre was before this interview, so I didn't talk to him explicitly about it. Um, and I and I Sarah about it. And it was very interesting too because uh, Sarah actually totally disagreed with Al, Ali Al Hori, which made which I'm I'm actually writing a paper on that right now about okay. these narratives that are arising. And as what what Ali said was, um, let me just read what he says. He goes, um, so Peter McIntyre is a psychologist. He's a professor of psychology. Robert Gardner is also a professor of psychology. Kim Knowles is a psychologist. Sarah Mercer has a degree in psychology. I guess she just got a master's degree. It says, yep. so we're talking about psychologists here. So the point I'm making, you know, some people might say, why do you care about these labels? Does it matter whether they are linguists or psychologists? I would say, yes, it does matter because psychologists are here to represent your training if you graduated from a linguistics department, do you have the training to do psychology research? Are you implying that you know anybody can do psychology? You don't need prior training in it? That would be problematic, right? Um, and then the last thing he said is, um, I'm not saying that people should stop doing psychology work in our field because they graduated from a linguistics department. What I am saying is that we should do interdisciplinary research by reaching out to psychologists and collaborating with them. So. I kind of wanted to get your take on that, you know, stemming from your previous conversation about how you're already doing, you know, research with a psychologist. Um, does that go into play as well? I guess it's a multi-tiered question. What's your What's your opinion about the labels issue? And then also the idea that you are collaborating with a psychologist in Peter McIntyre. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I, I I I you know I love Ali right, but I I do I do disagree with him vehemently on on what he is saying there, and, and it actually is surprising because you know what he's he's a he's an um, an expert actually in dynamics and dynamic systems, and if anybody is going to understand dynamic systems, we're going to understand that there's all kinds of things that are that are interacting and interrelating, and we can't put things into boxes. Mm-hmm. Because everything is is interconnected. Now, I would suggest that um, that I'm a I'm I'm in pedagogy. I'm a teacher, and what profession in the world uses more psychology? Well, next to being a psychologist, than being a teacher. 
I mean, if I'm if I'm going to be an effective teacher, I need to understand the mindsets and emotions and and the the the, the cognitive abilities of my students. Right. And so for 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 someone to say that um, you can't get into psychology because you're a linguist or you can't get into psychology because you're a teacher and they put me into that box, I would say, well, then I'm not going to be good at anything that has anything to do with with human emotion or human psychology or the or human behavior. So no, I just, you know what, I'm just so totally opposed. You know, I just, I, 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 it's something I don't understand. And I don't understand um, a person in dynamic who understands the dynamics of life and the classroom and language learning would suggest that we have to, you know, stick to a, a, a box. That's just That's just weird. Well, thank you for your candor on that, because I think it is an interesting topic. Um, oh, yeah, it is. It, it is. can go in a lot of different ways. I would, you know, just to, I, I wanted to get your opinion before I told you others, but it seems like you and Sarah are aligned on that. She she echoed <laughs> the same thing. But at the same time, she said that, you know, she did this psychology degree almost somewhat out of insecurity. She says, am I doing this right? But then she said when she finished a psychology degree, she thought, no, 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 no. We were doing it okay. You know, it just takes maybe a lot more reading because you have to read the psychology work and the right. educational work. And then fairness to Ollie, he he's kind of saying, well, we need to reach across the aisle, so to speak, you know, because back in the day, educators weren't really talking to linguists so to, or, you know, psychologists aren't talking to these people. And, right. you know, when I was doing my psychology degree, uh, they didn't have much, my advisors didn't have much background in language learning. Right. And so they hadn't read any of the stuff that I was reading. So right. I almost needed to defend the field. So I don't really know how I feel about it. I just knew that I, I see what you're saying, you know, especially, you know, even when you're talking about the chapter that we're discussing today, all of these factors that are going on are, there's so many psychological and effective factors in the classroom. So right. it is, it yeah. is, it is interesting. I don't know. Well, you know what? And I just want to add, add, um, one more thing. You know what, when we, when, as teachers, as language, as language teachers, as teachers in general, you know, the big idea right now is you need to to have learners who learn how to learn, right? Mm -hmm. And why do we say that? We say that because they need to be evolving as their life morphs, right? Mm -hmm. And so it may be that I started out as a high school English teacher, but as my life evolves and morphs, I've learned how to learn. And so the idea that I can't learn something new because I don't have a formal degree in it is really somewhat um, antithetical to the whole idea of why we educate people. We educate people so that they can keep on learning and exploring new things. You know, I, boy, life would be very dull if all I could do for the rest of my life is study what I studied in the university. That doesn't move anything forward, right? So yeah. a degree doth not make the person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because... But at the same time, when I read your work and you're, you're, you're publishing this, you know, emotion of emotion study and you published with a psychologist, I don't think that paper falls in the same argument because you're already working with a psychologist. I guess yeah. maybe Ali's talking about if there's a pure psychology, psychology paper and neither person has a degree in psychology, I guess it's okay as long as, but who's checking off on that, right? It, unless they're submitting to a psychology journal. Yeah. Well, we're 
doing peer reviewed, remember? Right. Right. So in our peer review, we would expect that um, if we're incorrect, I mean, or we're going in a wrong direction, that we're, we're going to be corrected. Right. Mm-hmm. That it wouldn't get published. And so we do have safeguards in the field to make sure that people are not um, publishing things that they know nothing about. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I, I asked um, Kim Knowles about this, and I guess I was kind of asking because she kind of agreed in some ways that we should do interdisciplinary research in that. Well, I do. I believe that too. I don't have a problem with that. But she was saying, I asked her, you know, have people reached out to you to do interdisciplinary research? And she said, no, not really. So I, I, don't, I don't really know the answer to this question. It's like, it, it seems like you because i thought the linear path was you were you studied under peter mcintyre but it sounds Peter's like he's younger than me <laughs> oh I mean, I mean as a oh is he really yeah oh, okay i i thought you were always i i always had this idea in my mind that you were the, the younger phd student no offense sorry <laughs> peter if you're listening <laughs> um but anyway i i think I, I think it's good to reach out to i guess my point is i think it's cool that at some point you reached out to him, whether that was because he was a psychologist or not, I, I don't know the answer to that. But is it just because you were at the same conferences or you were interested in the same types of things? Yeah, that's well, we were interested in the same types of things. I mean, we were at, at the point I met Peter, we were I was working on some um, he was working big time in motivation hmm. and I was working on a few things in motivation as well, particularly with a graduate student that I had. And so, yeah, so we, we, we picked up from there and then it, it was, I mean, um, how can I say, uh, the whole idea of positive psychology resonated really well with Peter and I at mm. the same time. So it's kind of like we were exploring the same thing at the same time together. And that's how, that's how we moved, you know, in unison uh, to where we are now. Well, it does. I mean, I don't. I don't know either of you. Just uh, except for you know seeing you on webinars and and recording the podcast, it does seem like your personalities are are quite different. Um, so it seems like a kind of a cool team. You know. Yeah. You, I don't know if that also plays into strengths and re- uh, strengths and we re- yeah strengths and weaknesses of researching or whatever. But it seems like it's a good team you you set up. Well, you know what? I mean, we we not only are our personalities different, but we have different skill sets when it comes to research writing. Mm. Um, I I am very how, how can I um, I produce a lot, and I'm not detail oriented. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of a global thinker, and so I get I get a lot down on paper very fast. And Peter is very reflective. And he ponders things, and he's very detail oriented, mm. and so so we make a great team that way. What's so, your what's your sort of approach to researching and write? Do you are are you the type of person that kind of keeps a schedule, and you have a couple um, hours okay. per day, or how how does it? How, what's your process? Well, you know what? It, 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 it depends on what stage of life I'm at, right? Mm-hmm. So now I don't have kids at home. And, you know, before my kids were 16 and had their driver's license, <laughs> then I had to really map out my, my day. When my kids were really small and I was a full-time professor and working on my PhD, I, you know, I had to get up at four in the morning, right? So, I mean, wow. it depended on my, on what point of life I'm at. Now, um, I'm, you know, <laughs> during COVID, 
I'm, you know, 24 hours in front of a computer. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, I do whatever I do. So now um, I am very much of a list person. And so I have, I have this, 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 and this that I need to get done by this time. And I love crossing things off. Um, but my daily schedule is, you know, pretty, I do a lot of writing in the mornings and then I do my teaching in the evenings because I've got mostly grad classes. So mm. that's how my, you know, my day looks. Well, that's cool. All right. So let's, let's jump into the chapter. Again, this chapter is called Dealing with the Emotions of Teaching Abroad, Searching for Silver Linings in a Difficult Context, uh, something I could relate to. And this is, again, yeah. published in The Emotional Roller Coaster of Language Teaching. This is written by yourself, Peter McIntyre, and Nicole McMillan. I, yep. How does she fit into the picture? Um, Nicole was a Peter's uh, honor student. I see. Yeah, so she was an undergraduate psych major, but wow. in the honors program. Yeah, in the honors program. So she was really good. All right. So when you first heard that this book was, well, when did you first hear that this book was being put together? And can you give us a little bit of a background of the chapter? Well, you know what? Um, uh, Jean Marc and Christina are also good friends of ours because they, 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 we, you know, we kind of belong to the same posse because we research. <laughs> Out of the similar things. And so they reached out to us and said, Hey, we're doing this book. Um, do you have anything in, in the hopper that, that you could, um, submit? And so Peter and I put our heads together and this is, uh, something that we had, we had been, you know, shooting, you know, kind of talking about for, for a while. And so we said, Hey, you know what, let's put this together because we were really interested in an in intervention research. Hmm. Um, because we were, you know, we're both very applied people and we're both very interested in, in doing things that, that have immediate effect. And so the whole idea of cognitive reappraisal was something that we had been talking about because it, it was something that, that resonated with both of us. Now, this, uh, chapter is based around, um, data collection with, with this one person pseudonym Elizabeth. Yeah. Were there, was there also other people that you had talked to, or is this sort of a standalone study? No, there were other people involved in it. There were other people involved in it um, up until uh, the second intervention. So, so, so the first wave of data where we asked the 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 respondents to reappraise an adverse event we had five people doing that okay and then once we had that data we zeroed in on elizabeth and we asked her to do the second part of it which was to take a look at her responses from the first wave of data and tell us um, how much control she felt she had over the situation and how well the um the cognitive reappraisal, finding a silver lining actually worked. And that was my favorite part of the chapter. Yeah. Um, which, we, which, which we can get into. Um, so I, I guess there, there's a few things. One topic that came up in the conversation with Peter is he was arguing there's a, there's a real need for individual data. Yeah. And how individual data can get lost in the group data. And I just wanted to get your, your ideas on that because – I totally agree, and I. But I just, I, I just would like how how do you how do you look at that because both can be true at the same time, right? A group study right. can be very valuable, and right. then individual data can be lost, and then an individual right. data can be very valuable. But then you say, well, 
how does how can I take this seriously if it's only an individual? So how do you situate those two kind of topics? Well, you know what? I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm sure that Peter's the same because we, you know, he wrote a, an article or a, a piece once called don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. And it had, it, it's got this similar idea. You know what? It's, we don't need just case studies and we don't need just group uh, psychometrics, right? We need both and both should inform each other. And mm-hmm. even better is if in the same study, we can, you know, use a mixed methods approach and, and, you know, get get di- uh, data that triangulates. That's even better, right? Mm. Um, but in the in the in, in <laughs> one of the funny things is that when Peter and I did do group data, what most researchers do is they lament when they get the outliers, right? They go, ah, this is going to ruin my my. This is going to skew my data. Mm. But it was so funny because working with Peter, it was like we became we we came to celebrate the quirkies. <laughs> and we started to really, hey, wh- wow, that that's quirky as all get out. Let's, what happened there? And we just enjoyed so much looking at all those those, those quirky people that, you know, doing individual level data was something that was just kind of normal for us. I mean, because when we did do group data, we were as interested in the outliers. And mm. so, so, yeah, so when we decided to do this case study, um, we discovered that particularly with um, PPIs, with positive psych interventions, um, it's kind of like, do you remember the old strat- um, language learning strategy research? In the end, we, you know, the, the, the big takeaway from that decade, decade and a half of research was that the best strategy users are the ones who know how to choose a strategy that works for themselves in the mm-hmm. individual context that they need to apply it. Right. And that's how you are supposed to apply language learning strategies. Even the same person using the same strategy at two different times, it might be successful one time and not the other because the context changed. Right. Mm. And so the same thing happens with positive psych interventions. Um, It's definitely a, a three part. It's the person, it's the context and it's the intervention. And even the same person using the same the same intervention, if the context is different, it might not be as applicable. So we take, for example, what happened in in the in the the article that we're talking about with uh, Elizabeth. We asked her to use cognitive reappraisal, finding a silver lining. So what we asked her to do was um, during your day when you come up against an adverse event, we want you to think of something good about it. So say, for example, you go into the, the, the teacher workroom and you were, were looking for that you know, 9 o'clock a.m. cup of coffee and someone had just taken the last cup of coffee and you don't have time to make a fresh pot because you've got class. And so instead of getting frustrated or annoyed, you could cognitively reappraise that and say, you know what? I needed to cut down my caffeine anyway. Okay, good. I'm off to class, mm. right? So that was what we asked her to do. And so she, she did that for an entire week. We also asked her to do two things to, or in order to solidify the, the, the reappraisal. One was to share it with the people around her, mm. you know, if she's in the coffee in the, in the break room, Oh, you know what guys, no coffee, how annoying, but you know what? I need to cut down my caffeine. 
And then we also wanted her to write it down. Okay. Cause we needed, we not only did we want to solidify it for her, but we also wanted to have it as a data set. So she did that. Now, what actually happened was that Elizabeth by nature uses a different strategy. She is what we call by nature. She's what we call a defensive pessimist. And what those kind of people do um, is they um, don't have high expectations. Mm. They set their expectations low so that if something good happens, they can be happy. And if something bad happens, then they say, okay, I hadn't planned for that. That's, that's exactly what I thought. Mm. Right? So defensive pe- pessimism is actually a very good strategy as well for some people under some conditions. Mm. So what we discovered with Elizabeth was that the, the silver linings worked for her on short term. She said that, yeah, yeah, these worked for me well. But then when we went longitudinally and went a month later and asked her, how did this look? How did this play back for you? She said it wasn't her, it wasn't her kind of thing. It wasn't what she what 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 puts her on the uh, in a good headspace. Mm. And so, yeah. So, I mean, it was one of those things where, OK, silver linings for me, for Tammy Gregerson, I, I, that's my natural go-to, uh, headspace. Mm. I always do that and I do it naturally. I don't do it on purpose. It just happens. But See, I, I, I kind of wanted to share an anecdote. There's, uh, my best friend who I, I've known since I was eight, I would say he's like this. And sometimes I don't know if I make fun of him, but I, I just kind of wonder if this was a movie how far could I take this before this little trick stops? Like, are you in prison? Are you on death row? Like, what? When? Like, he's so good at it. Like, his boss says, "Hey, I gotta, you gotta come to work at three in the morning." It's like, oh, cool. I'll, I'll get off at, I'll get off at noon. I'll have the whole rest of the day. He just immediately like that. Yeah. And and I call it like, um, like taking positive compartmentalization too far. Uh, <laughs> well, I have- I, if we're sharing anecdotes, I've got one. I've got one that will blow you away because it's just so outrageous. So my husband is Chilean. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we were living in the United States in Iowa and we got a phone call at 6 a.m. Wake, woke us up. One of our Chilean friends that was living in Iowa called us and said, turn on CNN. There's just been a horrible earthquake. Mm. And so we turned on CNN and we saw that Santiago had been hit by a, a big earthquake, over eight, on the Richter scale. And so we tried calling Chile. Obviously, the lines were down, da, 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 da. And so I got on Facebook and I put out a post, hey, we're trying to get a hold of our family in Chile. If anybody can get a hold of them or knows anything that, that, that's going on, could you please contact us via Facebook? Maybe the Internet is up, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, about 1030 in the morning. We got word that our entire family was safe. Hmm. They lived on the on the on the you know thirteenth the twelfth floor of a high rise, and we were concerned. Yeah. But anyway, we got and and so our family member contacted everybody else in Chile, and we were assured that everybody was fine. So it's time to sit down and have our morning cup of coffee. My husband and I at eleven o'clock, whatever we're doing, we always break. It's part of our routine. Nice. So, yeah, it is. So we broke and we were sitting there. So that's the, that's the key to a successful marriage. Okay. That's Let me rewrite this right? down one second. Okay, we, right. right. So we sat there. We've been married for 33 years. So we sat down with our cup of tea and I looked over at my husband and I said, Poppy, Poppy, you know what? 
I can't tell you how great this is that there was an earthquake in Chile. They're going to have to rebuild now. So there's not going to be any more unemployment. Wow. And he, looked at, he looked at me and he said, did you hear what you just said? <laughs> and it's like, I didn't try to do that. Right. I, 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 I mean, it, it just, I, I just blurted it out, but I really felt that way. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's great. I just do wonder when's, what's the limit? Because if that's your natural personality, yeah. I guess it, there is no limit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I probably, I probably drive people nuts. Yeah. Um, this is a little bit of a side top. We'll get back into the chapter. I just wanted to share, you know, something I was researching, but you know, now that I'm doing my PhD, I've re- I've kind of gone into some walls, and I think I'm going to have to maybe do this after I do my PhD. So I this whole thing about you know heart rate and and Likert scales, and yeah. I yeah. so I had this hypothesis that actually doing a Likert scale or manipulating certain self reports can actually lower anxiety. So that I was looking at some of these positive psychology interventions. You know, how can you how can you help anxious students. And so I had this, you know, I did a, I did this one sort of pilot study where I had them on a scale of one to 10 list how nervous they were before performance or after performance or, you know, when the class started and over time, you know, the, the nervousness uh, metrics went down, that's the self-report. Right. And then in psychology, they would argue, well, that, that intervention, that could have been an intervention, just having them do a self-report. And then I thought, oh, what, what happens if we manipulate the type of survey we give and the frequency of the survey and getting them to sort of reflect on it with, is, would that be an intervention? And can I correlate it with heart rate? And it started getting really complicated. And then I was thinking, Oh, can we do, what if, what if we do breathing and then we correlate that? So anyway, lots of ideas I have. I don't think it's going to fit well into a PhD. So I'm going to kind of put that on the shelf, but I just, I guess well, the I, point is cool. I'm thinking about this stuff. And it was cool that you had settled, I don't know if, again, settled is not the right word, but you decided, okay, we're just going to do this reframing PPI. Yeah. We're just going to do one. Right. And right. see how it works. You kind of kept it simple. Right. Right. You know, um, this might be another one, another paper that's going to be, would be interesting for your podcast when it's published. You know, we, um, Sarah and I just did two papers on something called appreciative inquiry. Hmm. And what we did is it's, it, it's kind of like a positive psychology intervention, but it's, it's actually something that comes from um, uh, the psychology of uh, industrial psychology. And what happens is that what, what we do, what we did was we provided only positive feedback. We looked at what everybody did right. Hmm. And we, we, uh, and this was in practicum. And we, we gathered data on students' responses to the whole idea of feeling that their confidence had been increased. And there was a huge impact on the level of anxiety of the students in terms of it, it plummeting, in terms mm. of it feeling, going very, very well. Because we were able to, to show that, you know, with this increased confidence, anxiety was reduced. So, I mean, there's a direct... There's a relationship between a level of confidence and anxiety. And so any way that you can raise confidence, like by allowing them to take something several times, like you were talking about getting them to reflect before they do the self-report, all of those things would probably help. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested in this field and it seems like you are kind of on the forefront um, 
the, you know, positive psychology in language learning is yeah. that I got some more questions about the paper, but do you think you're going to continue on this path or is there another sort of uh, research area that's kind of you foresee opening up in the next 10 years? But you know what? I mean, we're we're uh, we're looking at a lot of teacher psychology, right? Mm. And what we're doing is we're looking at teacher psychology through a positive psychology lens, through mm. through the whole idea of empowering teachers, right? Um, I I I mean, it could morph into something else. It could evolve into something else. I'm not closed off to that. But at the moment, I'm. Um, we're so passionate about it that I, you know, I, at this moment, I don't see, I mean, I see us moving forward in this same field. Um, it could take some deviations. I love serendipitous movements in life, so it could, but right now, um, this is, you know, this has got my attention. So, because I mean, just from my perspective and I'm no expert, it just seemed like motivation is just, a, it was a huge boom and I guess it's still booming in some ways. Yeah. language learning anxiety and then positive psychology and it just seems like that's the big that if you're going to start off with your master's or phd that's probably where you should go nowadays i don't know is that kind well, of the way you see it yeah well you know what if you're interested in the psychology of of language learning um it'd be a good i mean it, it, it's a fascinating uh, field or subfield to study um of course if you're not into you know psychology of language, then you might, you know, you, you might be studying syntax, right? But I mean, for people who are studying uh, language or language learning psychology, we're looking at teacher psychology mostly. Um, there's also the whole idea of interventions for students. I've done some some um, positive psych interventions on language learners, and that was, that was a lot of fun as well. But um, there's a lot to do in learning and teaching and the, the influence of each on each other, right? Mm. Um, all right. So just getting back into the chapter and we can kind of wrap it up with a couple more questions. Um, so again, the chapter we're talking about today is dealing with the emotions of teaching abroad, searching for silver linings in a difficult context. So in the table, uh, when people go out and buy the book, there's this table, Elizabeth's stressor, silver linings and appraisal scores. Yeah. And I was really interested with the degree of control. Yeah. And I know for people that are going to read, we don't need to go through all of them, but I would think that's a really cool thing for people to check out because we're not just talking about everyday run in the mill stuff. There's some, some pretty like riot in the street and stuff. Right? Right. Whoa. I was kind of surprised when I saw and that. that. I mean, and that wasn't as stressful to her as, you know, having a fight with a colleague. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's really interesting. Um, lot, well, lots of interesting stuff in the chapter. Yeah. Of course, we don't have time to talk about everything. But, uh, you I, know, was, I think one thing important oh, ahead, to note about, about the level of control, Jonathan, mm -hmm. is that that level of control would be an indicator as to whether uh, silver linings would be effective or not. In this mm. sense, it, uh, silver linings would not be a good intervention to use if you have control over the situation uh. in that case defensive pessimism would be so say for example i am consistently late right and then i say to myself oh well you know what being late i got more done at home well you know what i have a lot of control over being late mm. right so finding a silver lining only perpetuates that bad habit mm. right 
Whereas if I'm going to do, if I, if I, if I, if I'm going to be doing something, if, if I've got something adverse occurring over which I have no control, then silver linings would be a much better way to deal with it because you know there's nothing I can do about it. So I may as well appraise, I may as well change the way I view it so that I can, so I can deal with it better psychologically and emotionally. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, you talk about it in the chapter, but I just kind of, I, I, I'd like to apply all of these things to myself. Right. I, um, the only thing that I think, I think I'm more towards, I don't think I'm a defensive pessimist. I'm somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I think for me, like breathing really helps. <laughs> yep. Um, like I was trying to think about staying in the present moment and yeah. not letting my brain just kind of, kind of go off. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I think for me sometimes the silver and you mentioned it in the chapter. Sometimes the silver lining, uh, I was about to say the silver lining playbook that movie. Sometimes yeah. the, the silver lining <laughs> right. playbook doesn't always work for me. Yep, yep. No, it doesn't, and it, it it shouldn't. Because if you've got control over the situation, you shouldn't be finding silver line. If 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 you need to be, I mean, if you're responsible for some bad behavior, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we're kind of up on 50 minutes. Of course, we could talk a lot more, but I, I don't want to take too much of your time. Is there any other things you wanted to highlight or draw attention to in this chapter or anything else? You know, I just, um, you know, I always try to, you know, we're at the end of, well, we're not at the end, but we're in this, the middle of this COVID thing. And I, if I, if I may, I just want to, you know, put in a plug for all those teachers out there who are, who continue to be frontline workers, who are doing everything they can to make like uh, learning positive for their, for their kids. And you know what I'm, I, there's, there's not been a moment in my life where I've been more proud to say that I'm a teacher. And so I just, I, I, I'll, I want to give a shout out just to, to all of my my teacher colleagues, whatever level they teach, and just say, "Hey, you guys rock! Love y'all." Yeah, I've definitely became a worse teacher the past couple of years. <laughs> could, could use a pep talk. Um, all right. So again, the the book is the emotional roller coaster of language teaching. Lots of cool stuff in this book, and the chapter is dealing with the emotions of teaching abroad. Searching for Silver Linings in a Difficult Context. Dr. Tammy Gregerson, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. It's been a lot of fun. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.